Welcome to Reclaiming Patriotism. I'm Ken Harbaugh. There is a reckoning happening in our country right now. From the Me Too movement to the March for Our Lives, people are challenging the status quo and demanding an accounting. It has made some reconsider the way they think about their country. Patriotism itself has not escaped this reckoning, which is why we're here today. No. I think patriotism now is being defined as loyalty to Donald Trump, and I don't think that's patriotism. Um, not a full-blooded patriot. Not particularly. It seems like the people who claim that title have a certain set of beliefs which are very different from my understanding of patriotism. So if I were to tell people, yes, I'm very patriotic, they would have an incorrect understanding of what I think and who I am. When I joined the military, it was out of a sense of duty, an act of obligation to a country that had given me so much. In hindsight, I understand that my youthful patriotism was born of a certain privilege. I never had to worry about what might happen to me during a traffic stop or whether my parents could afford their medication. My moment of reckoning came in a hospital 10 years ago as my infant daughter underwent the first of a series of surgeries for a craniofacial reconstruction. I will never forget the panic in her eyes as the anesthesiologist held a clear plastic mask to her face. There is no fear like leaving one's child on an operating table, then retreating, helpless, to the waiting area. I knew that this surgery, though best for my kid, might bankrupt my family. I was between jobs and, like so many Americans, facing a mountain of medical bills. One of my greatest regrets in life is that it took the suffering of my own child to more clearly appreciate the suffering of others. My wake-up call came in that hospital waiting room, realizing that true love of country demands reckoning. How can it make sense to fight our enemies abroad if we neglect to care for the most vulnerable here at home? Patriotism requires that we are not only proud of America's achievements, but honest about our faults. We cannot love our country if we are unable or unwilling to reckon. Today, I sit down with two people who have experienced very different kinds of reckoning. General Stanley McChrystal served as commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan. He shares with us the challenges he faced in that role and how we might, as a nation, reckon with the wars fought in our name. But first, we hear from retired Master Sergeant Mike Washington, a decorated U.S. Marine and firefighter, who describes how he has come to terms with losing his own son in Afghanistan and how that has impacted the way he feels about his country. Master Sergeant Mike Washington, it is such an incredible honor to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. You're embarrassing me with that honor stuff, man. I'm your friend. Uh, <laughs> with your permission, then, let's uh, let's go by uh, top for the rest of the show and a quick ex- explanation for that. That is a honorary title reserved for Marines who reach the highest enlisted rank. And it usually, it's the kind of thing you leave behind when you leave the Marine Corps. But your career of service has, if anything, grown since you took off the uniform. And you've been top ever since in more ways than one. So top, uh, let's retry that. Welcome to the show, buddy. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm honored to be here with you and uh, be part of this uh, team. I want to talk about that continuation of service. I mean, you have made your life about service, and not just yours, but your family's life has been a story of service. And we'll get to that in a second. But I'd love to get your thoughts on translating that service in uniform to service as a civilian in the fire service and what that means to you and and how you think about patriotism in the context of, of military service 
and then serving your fellow Americans at home as a firefighter, helping them day in and day out on the worst days of their lives. Well, you know, my, my service in uniform is part of a family legacy, if you will. Um, you know, my father was a Marine, my brother, of course, my son, myself, my daughter is a soldier. Um, you know, my, my wife uh, uh, was a soldier, and uh, my daughter is an ICU nurse now. So a service to the community is I, I don't know if, if there's such a thing as being embedded in your DNA, or maybe I just don't have the, uh, the appropriate skills to be an entrepreneur. Maybe that's it, too. I don't know. But that service to community has just always been there on some level. There's, there's needs to be met, and, um, you know, sometimes I have the skill set that right moment in time to be that person, that agent of change. And so be it. That's my destiny and my skill set. And then I need to use it. I guess you can call it patriotism, service to our fellow Americans and then overseas as representatives of us as Americans as well. So I have, yeah, if we have to put a label on it, patriotism, I guess, would be appropriate on some level. I've been downrange with you in Team Rubicon. I've, I've served alongside you, and I have seen that deep, deep well of compassion you have for people in their toughest moments. And, you know, it's, I think, an extraordinary ability to have that one-on-one empathy, but then to also have the opportunities as you have to impact literally millions. I remember um, the, the Starbucks upstanders campaign of, of which you were a poster child. And I mean, why did you see the need to do that? It goes beyond uh, uh, even being a firefighter in the military. I, I think I am a representative of, of every man. Um, my story isn't, isn't the biggest or the smallest. I, I, am, I am every man. And, that, and part of that story includes being uh, coming from a very humble beginning and being molested as a child and uh, poverty and alcohol and uh, uh, violence in my neighborhoods. And there was always somebody at some point, whether it was in my family or outside my family, who uh, had that compassion, who saw something in me and said, okay, you need to go right instead of left at this juncture. Even as I, you know, as a 50-year-old man, when I'm standing on a bridge ready to jump off because I was unable to reach out and, and ask for help, the, you know, what I, I think is, and well, what I know is the spirit of my son pulled me back and said, there's more for you to do here. Your, your mission is not over. So I need you to get off this bridge. I need you to get yourself straight, you know, ask for that help, get that help. And then take this message and move it forward. Maybe my days of, you know, heavy physical labor as a firefighter are coming to an end, but there's more to give. And and part of it is my story. And if that story is going to be enough to make somebody think that, okay, I'm not alone, then that's that's my next mission. That's where I go next. But I got to imagine, Top, that nothing can prepare you for those Marines coming to the fire station in their dress uniforms. Do you mind if I ask you about that, if we talk about Mike Jr.? No, of course. I And, and that's, a, that's a vital part of my story. Um, I was working uh, at Fire Station 16 in Green Lake in, uh, in central, just north-central Seattle. It was a beautiful day, June 14, 2008, and uh, it was an overtime shift, and um, it was it's a nice station, and it was just a great day. And uh, as I we were uh, about to be dispatched for a call, so I was putting on my, my bunking coat, my uniform, outside the engine, which was parked on the apron, 
when I saw my best friend in the fire department suddenly pull up to the station, and I said, man, this day can't get any better. Overtime shift with my best friend, this is going to be a great day. But he, instead of walking up to me, he walked up to the officer, and they were talking, and I couldn't really hear except that he said that you're out of service uh, over the, uh, the humming of the diesel engines or the fire engine. And I thought that was unusual. And then uh, almost instantaneously, I saw the white Suburban pull up with uh, the two Marines and uh, my son's mother in the back seat. And then I, I knew my worst fears had been realized, a moment that I had really kind of tried to rehearse. I knew exactly what was getting ready to happen. I knew what was about to unfold as that young captain marched up to me and rendered a hand salute. And he says, Master Sergeant, regret to inform you that your son's been killed in action in Afghanistan. Uh, as I recall, everything kind of kind of turns into a combat moment, actually, to be quite honest, because time expands and con- uh, contracts. But I, I, I do remember saying to myself, okay, hold, hold it together, hold it together, even while I'm watching other people, you know, cry and shed tears. You know, that was one of the uh, final things in that dam that I've been holding from childhood, from my, my tours, from fire department. And uh, so it was uh, the, the worst day. The worst day. Yeah. And and how long did you bear this burden of having to be the, or at least give the appearance of being the tough guy, the one who was the rock for everyone else? I mean, that is something you did for a while, and it, it nearly broke you. Probably until I was about 50 years old when I was standing on a bridge not far from this from this spot where I'm at right now. And, uh, and, and it, you know, it's not an easy turnaround. You don't go 50 years of being this person and changing around. But what I found is that I'm not less. I'm not, I'm not weak. I'm not soft. I'm, if anything, I'm stronger. And when I share this story and I talk about these challenges and, and to include my inability to, to face them, that I, I am a, I am still this person and I'm a stronger person for it. And, uh, and when I can help somebody else in this manner, then I think it's as good as, reviving somebody with CPR or pulling somebody out of a fire or any of these other physical descriptions of help and service. If I can reach one person in an audience of soldiers that I talk to at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and one person, whether I know them or not, is able to kind of look and kind of go, I get it. I'm not alone in this. And all I need to do is put up my hand, go to that office, call that number to start, just like he did. What kind of toll do you think the last 18 years of war have taken on my generation, uh, on the generation now coming up after mine? I mean, we're about to send kids to Afghanistan who were born after 9-11. You don't come back from something like that without having some of those things that you just referenced. You don't know when they're going to come back up. We've asked a lot of the Americans we've sent over there. Well, and that's just it, Ken. You know, there's always that, that talk that America's been at war for 18 years, and America has not been at war. You know, the Army and the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force have been at war, and especially the Army and the Marine Corps. They've been at war for 18 years, but the American public, by and large, I mean, if you just break down the numbers, has not been at war. There's no, there's no draft. There's no taxes. There's, there's nothing that, that forces an American to take a look at what's going on and what we are doing in their name. And I think that's as much of a detriment to our, our veterans and, and, and our the soul of our country, I, I dare say, and, and that we have this separation of service. And I'm not saying, I, I'm, I'm not 
trying to be jingoistic, and but there's got to be some kind of way where our populace who is who is not part of the military response, whether someone in your family or them themselves, that they are involved. We seem like we're beating the the war drums right now with with Iran, you know, and and it's the people who beat these drums typically who don't go. That that's the other thing. I mean, you call it out as sort of a broad phenomenon, but I think it's really concentrated in a couple groups of American society who think that enforcing the poli- policies of our civilian masters should be left to others. I mean, I when I was teaching at Yale, I had one student who knew someone his age in the military. And incidentally, it was my only African-American student. I think that was part of it, the undue burden we place on certain groups in our society to do our fighting. And if you go to a place like Yale or Harvard, you can spend your entire time there without any exposure to the wars we're fighting. Yeah, and, that, and that's a problem. That, that's a problem. And I, and I understand that there are, there are families out there, my family, your family, who are, uh, for a, a lack of a better term, American samurai, we serve. Doesn't matter when the balloon goes up, we're going to go because that's what you do. Now, conversely, there is that separation for the rest of the population. Now, we're 330 million, and uh, I, I dare say our, our those who have served are probably in the single digits. So there's a gap of understanding of what exactly we're asking our young people to do. And in that, that gap gets filled by Hollywood or it gets, it gets filled by anecdotal stories that get repeated and built on and built on and built on until you have a completely distorted view of what a veteran looks like or what a vet- veteran is. Top, you have spoken publicly about anger and the anger you felt after losing Mike Jr. Were you ever angry at your country? Uh, not as my my country as a whole. I, I continue to believe in the goodness of this country, and there's just so many examples of that. However, I recall being really, really angry when uh, bin Laden was killed, and the news was showing all these, all these students just cheering outside of the White House. And I just had this anger well up in me that said, you don't get to celebrate this. You don't have a stake in this. And, and it's rational. Understand, I'm saying that my feelings were true and they're in my heart. But I also, you know, it's irrational. You know, our government said, hey, we don't want you to be affected by these wars. We're going to do it on the cheap. Don't worry about it. Continue to do what you do. And these college kids were celebrating something. uh, Like a football game. Like a football game. And I just felt a lot of anger at that moment. There was no cheering for me. None of my friends, when we uh, talked on the phone, it it was almost just like confirming that the target had been eliminated. So I'm not I'm not angry my with my country. There's a lot there's a lot yeah. a lot better things in this country than not. When I go to the immigrant rallies here in Tacoma and I see all the different groups of people that are there trying to to at least the, the beginning steps of standing up for people. That's the best tradition of America. You made reference to the immigrant rally and and the idea of beginning something, and I I think it it to me points to this deeper truth about patriotism, that it's about moving our country forward. It's about not just loving what our country is, but loving what it can be. And you have felt that imperfection as keenly as as anyone. Um, But you still love this country, it sounds like. Absolutely. You know, this is a country where there's a significant part of the population who cannot agree that the Civil War was about slavery, you know, who will not, who will (laughs) not 
say that. And uh, that's a problem in that we don't know our history, that we're not willing to crack a book or even if it's going to be on the internet, we're not willing to sit there and look at the same site and dig deep into that research because all the information is there as well. But, we, you know, so that's a problem. If we can't even agree on that, uh, how do we move forward? And, you know, that what they say about eating an elephant, you do it one bite at a time. And it's just try and affect the people in your orbit. That's that's really the best you can do. Two more questions for you. When you talk about going to Oklahoma in the wake of a disaster or or Americans come coming together, just share with me a little about what, what you've seen in terms of Americans being able to set their differences aside in, in moments of crisis, even as messed up as we sometimes are, the fact that we can't agree what the Civil War is about. Uh, as 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 a, a black guy going into Oklahoma after disaster to help people on the worst days of their lives, what's that moment like to you? It's that moment that gives you that hope. Uh, we had a, a, a large wildland fire here in Pateros, Washington, a few years back. And I remember when, uh, when I'm a team lead, what I often do is that when we have a break and I institute these mandatory water breaks or, or after our day, I ask everybody how they come to be here at this spot doing what they're doing. And in Pateros, there was a group of Mennonites from a, uh, from a town uh, down the river. And they are such a secluded sect that, I mean, they had accents. It sounded like they just got here from Holland, you know, uh, you know within the year. Wow. But they've been there a long time. And, and it was really somebody needed help. I have the ability to help them. So here I am. And that's everybody's, you know, general story on some level or another. Uh, in uh, Washington, Illinois, one of the coldest operations we did, uh, one time uh, two big tour buses pulled up. People came out and said, we're looking for a guy named Top Washington. And I said, well, that's me. And he said, well, they told us to report to you. And they had driven 400 miles. And these were people who were office workers, housewives, factory people, you name it. They ran the gamut. And... They put aside whatever it is they were doing, took time off, got on buses, traveled 400 miles to do this. And at the end of the day, I always try to, to have people look around and see all the different people that are here and, and understand that there's the ties that bind us together are stronger than what separate us. And I ask them to remember when they feel this push or this pull, rather, that, that the machine is really good at doing, the, the, uh, the machine that's out there, the advertising, the political machines, they, they're really good at dividing us. But if they feel that pull again or they hear people talk about us and them, to remember this day, remember the day that we were standing here in Pateros, Washington, in Washington, Illinois, Marseilles, Illinois, uh, Oklahoma, Houston, uh, Union Beach, New Jersey, you name it, any of the places that I've been Remember this day when we have a group here that came from all over the country, veterans, non-veterans, everybody. We came here and we started digging in to help people we'll never know. Well, that is beautiful, Top, and you've probably answered my last question. Uh, what is the most patriotic thing you've ever witnessed? I'll tell you something. What? How, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll give you something that every day there's things that lead up. My, my wife and I were at a stoplight just a few miles from here. Suddenly, this, this guy appears on the passenger side window, pressed up against the glass. And this is a, a big white guy with big red beard. And he had a very excited <laughs> look on his face. Like, And I was just like, uh-oh, something's about to go down here. 
uh, and, and there's cars all around me, and I can't drive out of this. And he goes, hey, I saw the sticker on the back. I have a picture of, of Michael on the back. And he goes, and so when he said that, I rolled down the window a little bit. He goes, he sticks his, his big, beefy ham hock of an arm inside and shakes my hand. He had tears in his eyes. He says, brother, I am, I am, thank you for what your son did for our country, and uh, I love you for it. And then he just grabbed my wife and just looked at her and just said, thank you. And he went, got back in his car, and that was it. And at that moment, he was with me, he was with my son, and I love him for it. And that's what's great about America. When Top talks about patriotism, he talks about sacrifice. He has given more than any parent should have to. But he still believes in this country, not for everything it is, but for everything it promises to be. We'll be right back after this. Crooked Minis is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I hear that's a good setup. Hey, John. Hey, John. (laughs) Sitting right next to me. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. Get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, sleeping, trauma, and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Crooked Minis listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code Crooked Minis. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com Crooked Minis. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor your love. That's betterhelp.com slash crooked minis. Reckoning can take many forms. For Top, it was coming to terms with the loss of his son. For our next guest, General Stanley McChrystal, it was reconsidering his legacy as commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan. General McChrystal, it is an honor to have you on the show. I've got a whole list of Superlatives I could uh, read off here from commanding the Joint Special Operations Command to leading ISAF, the war effort in Afghanistan. But honestly, the one thing that's not here that I think is the standout is the way you cared about your soldiers. You really led those men and women in Afghanistan as a soldier's soldier. And if, if I had a nickel for every time I talked to someone who described you showing up in the middle of the night with body armor at the helicopter with a team heading out on, on a mission, on a raid, getting out from behind the desk, I'd be a, a rich man by the number of stories I've heard, they're probably, many of them, apocryphal, but it's a sign of just how large your legend looms in the, the minds of your soldiers, that they all felt you were with them. Thank you so much for being here. And I got to add, when I asked for your help on the campaign trail, you got out from behind the desk and you showed up. You came to Ohio. What informs that element of your leadership style? Why do you do that? I thought we were past the general thing and we were to Ken and Stan, and I'm hoping we'll get back (laughs) there. And for the rest of the conversation, I'm going to try to hold you to that. But, you know, one of the first things is I think a leader has to care about not only what they are doing, but who they are doing it with. I think that's the one thing that's very hard to fake. I mean, certain people can fake it for a period of time, but I think soldiers or people who work in a company or students, they can feel that over time. And so I think first and foremost, that has to be genuine. You you have a lot of other things you do. And as you mentioned, there's a certain mythology that's grown up around to the way I 
I led, which is far greater than the reality of it. But that's also people, I think, believing in the idea of leadership more than the idea of Stan McChrystal. And if that's helpful for other people in how they decide to lead going forward, then I think that's a contribution that any of us as leaders can can make. We have some distance now, at least you do, with which to view the war in Afghanistan, which still rages, of course. But you've had the better part of a decade since you were there to think about your contribution, to think about the war as it stands now. What is your assessment? Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, just recently, President Trump made the comment that he would like to pull American forces out, but that if he did, there would be a risk of al-Qaeda going back and establishing a safe haven. And so he was not going to do that. And, and if you step back, it's, it's not funny, but in, in one way it is, because what he's doing is almost exactly what every one of his predecessors did. They looked at a complex problem for which there is no neat and clean solution Uh, And they decided to do something that seems to be enough, but they are conscious isn't enough to change the dynamic significantly. So it's a continuation of the status quo. And I don't consider that self-evil. I don't consider that necessarily a mistake. I think that is a recognition that something as difficult as Afghanistan doesn't have a short-term or an absolutely clear lever that you pull for for a great outcome. What should we be thinking of in terms of solution if the status quo is unacceptable? If we look at the options for the United States and Afghanistan, first we have to examine the history. We were there in spirit in the 1980s providing support for the Afghan mujahideen, the seven groups that opposed the Soviets. And for about a decade, we provided money and weaponry. At the end of that decade, when the Afghans triumphed, meaning that the Soviets left, we viewed it as a victory. And in some ways, we patted ourselves on the back and beat our chests that we defeated the Soviet Union. We gave them their Vietnam. The Afghans, on the other hand, would notice that right after the Soviets left, essentially the Americans withdrew our support and involvement in Afghanistan. And we then are essentially not involved for the 1990s, which is a very difficult decade for the Afghans. There's a civil war among the Mujahideen groups. And then there is the rise of the Taliban, almost in reaction. They take most of the country, but not all of it. And they put in place a regime that ultimately proves fairly incompetent and very extreme. And that takes us almost to September 11th, 2001. After September 11th, the United States comes back in. And a lot of times people, when I was serving in Afghanistan, they would say, well, you know, we're here helping the Afghans. And then I would remind them, the Afghans didn't ask us to come help. We went because it was in our interest. And so we went in to get at al-Qaeda. And in doing so, we overthrew the Taliban government, which was giving safe haven to the al-Qaeda regime. So we enter Afghanistan. The government is now toppled. And things about the Afghan society were literally torn into tatters. And so the West decided it was our moral obligation and our interest to try to help a new regime stand up. Hopes were that it would be fairly easy. It has not been. That was predictable. There were really three options in Afghanistan, and they're the same options we faced in Vietnam or other places. There's the option of do more, do less. And then the third is do about what you're doing now. If you say we will do more, 
most people would say that's politically untenable inside the United States. If you say do less, then you have the danger of allowing a reintroduction of a terror safe haven and therefore potentially another 9-11 type attack launched from a safe haven that we allowed to come back into uh, to being. And so you're looking, they've got two really bad options on the two ends and they make the decision to stay with something that looks and feels a lot like the status quo. Now, I don't think that means doing nothing. I don't think it's irresponsible. I think it is doing a limited amount with the hope that the government of Afghanistan, Jeroa, will mature to the point where it can establish its own sovereignty, its own political viability, and they won't need outside uh, help. But when you look at the, the range of options, I can't see one that's uh, easier or actually more logical. We'll be right back after these messages. Cricket Minis is brought to you by DoorDash. What's the one dish from your favorite restaurant that you can never recreate at home? Revenge. <coughs> Where do they serve that? What, what restaurant? I know, it always arrives. It's a cold pizza. Oh, I'm very sorry. What if someone brought revenge right to your front door? DoorDash scary. connects you to all your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and your dasher will bring it right to you. Love those dashers. Wherever you are, not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities in all 50 states across the United States and Canada. Order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Those are definitely some of my favorite chains. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our <laughs> listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code Crooked Minis. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code Crooked Minis. Again, that's promo code Crooked, Min- Crooked Minis for $5 <laughs> off your first order from DoorDash. She sells seashells. Yeah, she sells by the DoorDash. One of the things I, I want to talk to you about is the role that reckoning plays in patriotism and love of country. I can't avoid or escape this feeling that 20 years from now or 30 years from now, we're going to be looking back on this era the way we look back on Vietnam in the the late 60s. Do you have a sense of how history will judge this conflict? And to personalize it, how history will judge your role in it? I think all of us think about that. And I think most of us are less worried about how history is going to judge us than of how we should judge ourselves. I would say, first, if you look back to the war in Vietnam, and I didn't fight in Vietnam, although my father and brother did, it was not evil in intent. When the United States first got involved in Indochina, there was a logic to it. Whether we completely agree with the domino theory or not, if you put yourself in the summer of 1950, the idea of a communist menace feels a lot more real than it may feel in you know, decades away from that when we know how the Soviet empire ends. Now, going back to our first question, and I described the three courses of action in Afghanistan, it's easy now to say, how could they be so stupid? And I would go back and say, all right, put yourself in their position, what they knew, what the political realities were, and tell me what you would do differently. It's easy to be critical, but I think we also have to contextualize a bit. We didn't choose to go to Afghanistan because we thought about it a long time and there's gold or oil or something. And so after 9-11, when the United States intervened in Afghanistan almost spasmodically in response to the 9-11 attacks, that's pretty understandable. 
Then you are there in the fall of 2001 with this broken country, the Afghan people looking at us and says, well, you, you know, we fought for a decade in your support in the 1990s and then you deserted us. Now you're back. Are you going to support us this time and, and give us an opportunity to grow into a, a, uh, a prosperous, sovereign nation? It was kind of hard for the world and particularly the United States to turn its back and so it didn't. Yeah, indisputably tough, but I I think all too often we err on the side of the political consideration. How well do you think we do as a country at at reckoning with our mistakes? I think we need to do that. I think we need to reckon with not only the nature of decisions we make and, and how we made them and their cost, but I think we need to reckon, almost respect the complex nature of those decisions because decisions in the future are going to be complex. They are not going to be a case of this is right, this is wrong, and so we get to choose right and move forward. They're usually going to be two painful decisions, and we're going to have to choose one that has a number of negative aspects to it. And then we are going to have to decide whether we got it right and at some point shift course if, if it proves we didn't. That does make sense, although the question looms when you know a war is unwinnable or when all of the metrics suggest that, from the soldier's point of view, how can you justify the continued prosecution of that? And I guess a lot of it depends on the de- definition of victory. Absolutely. And what we find is, as wars go along, I would argue that there was a, certainly an argument to be made in June of 1940 that Winston Churchill could have followed that says that the metrics are not in their favor. And so I don't want Fair to compare... Enough. World War II to Vietnam or to Afghanistan or to Iraq. And I do think it's very important that policymakers understand that the decisions they make not to change course or the decisions they don't make, I should say, can carry huge costs. And, you know, continuing a war, continuing a any line of political activity that's actually very costly, is something that we as a nation have got to stand up and be willing to do. And quite frankly, I think America's in a crisis of leadership right now. I think maybe we're in a crisis of values. I think that we are doing and being a part of some things that aren't worthy of the values we say we hold, and we need to be able to own up to that. You spoke about values and the the crisis of values we're, we're facing in this country, and I would connect that directly to the ostentatious display of patriotic symbols as a proxy for values. When I see politicians opt for the biggest American flag they can buy as a substitute for making tough decisions, I connect that to this degradation of values that we're seeing more broadly and, and that you just spoke to. Do you think I'm going too far? No, actually, Ken, I don't. And I think it's important that we as a nation understand that. I've never worn an American flag lapel pin. And it's not because I don't believe in my nation. It's not because I don't believe in our flag. It's because, like you say, sometimes I think people take symbols and perfectly well-intentioned symbols worn or carried by most people, when they are leveraged by other people and for other reasons, they can become negative. Like you say, either chanting USA or talking about how good your race is or your religion is. I think sometimes beating the chest and saying how great our country is on the surface might be good, except that if we are looking at someone who's not an American and we're trying to make the point or, you know, we are better than you, 
I don't think that's worthy of us. And I think that any time you have a set of symbols or a set of beliefs that is designed to say that we are inherently better than someone else, another race, another religion, another anything, then I think we're getting into a values area that I think ultimately is very, very negative. It gets to everything from racism, supremacy, arrogance, and I'm not comfortable with that. We as Americans should be proud of our country, but I think that how we express that, it can be joyous, it can be overt, but it, it shouldn't be arrogant or offensive to others. Beyond talking about it, which is important, it's why we're doing this, what can we do about it? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one of the first things I sort of roll my eyes when I see someone who has wrapped themselves into some kind of hyper-patriotism or something, I ask them, okay, what are you doing? What have you done and what are you doing? Most Americans are citizens by accident of birth alone, meaning we didn't do anything for it. We suddenly came to consciousness and we had this wondrous gift of American citizenship, which gives us rights that most countries don't have, gives us privileges that literally on the face of the earth have never been seen by a nation before. And we suddenly think we deserve this. As you know, Ken and I, you and I have talked a lot about it. I'm a great believer in service. And that doesn't mean you have to serve in uniform. In fact, the American military is small enough now by design and necessity that it's not appropriate for everyone to serve in service like, like you did. But as Dr. Martin Luther King said years ago in his famous drum major speech, he says, you don't have to understand Aristotle and Plato to serve. You don't have to understand Albert Einstein. All you have to do is have the values and the willingness to serve the nation it can be serving children. It can be serving all the things that are necessary for the fabric of the nation. And if you're not willing to do that, maybe you shouldn't be quite so outspoken about what you think about the nation. For those listeners who aren't steeped in the effort to expand national service opportunities, what would that look like? Of course, it can be almost cradle to grave. But the thing we're focused on now is giving young Americans between 18 and 28 the opportunity to do a year of full-time paid service in a variety of civilian endeavors, conservation, healthcare, education, those things that fit. It could be in the Peace Corps, it could be in AmeriCorps, it could be in City Year, it could be in Teach for America, or a constellation of other efforts. Now, a few things about that. The first thing is people say, why? We're just trying to get young people to do cheap labor. No, we're not. The goal of this is to give young people an experience of serving something greater than themselves, often with people not of their background and from their zip code, to broaden their horizons, to produce alumni. This is about the experience. And the idea is based upon the reality that everyone who serves comes out differently. And I think when you come out, the experience shapes you and in the vast majority of cases makes you much more. If someone serves, they vote at three times the rate of someone who doesn't. And for a country which votes at an embarrassingly low rate, that's huge. If someone serves early in their lifetime, they have a much greater proclivity to serve later. And you'd say, people say, well, how would this look? First, it would be full-time and paid for two reasons. Full-time to be completely invested for a year and everybody's got the time. It has to be paid because you don't want it limited to people whose families can support them for a year. 
And it has to be worthy service so that you come out with a sense of satisfaction at what you've done. And then I would argue that there are many things we can connect to this to make it practically effective. We talk a lot about free college for people. Well, why don't we say, how about free college after they do their service? So we could put together this kind of program. We could change how our nation thinks about itself, starting with how we as citizens think about ourselves and then how we think about our connection to every other American. It's indisputable that the benefits that accrue to that individual serving are significant. But for me, the real selling point has to be this idea of a shared sense of citizenship. And I would tie that back to to my military service. When I think about what I got out of the Navy, I mean, sure, they taught me how to fly. They taught me how to lead. But more than anything, they taught me that when you throw a bunch of Americans together in a metal tube off of North Korea or wherever, you rise above whatever petty differences may have separated you before then, and you get the job done. And I think national service has that power as well. We want a generation of young people who see requirements in the country and instinctively feel responsible to take some role in addressing them. Amen. Well, Stan, we end every podcast with uh, with the same question. What is the greatest act of patriotism that you've ever witnessed? Instinctively, you want to say that it's someone who gives their life for their country. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure it's someone who throws themselves on a hand grenade. I sometimes think it's someone who has all the opportunity in the world and yet decides that they are going to do something and contribute their life one day at a time for the nation. We've seen people, teachers, who teach 40 or 50 years and they they stand in front of a group of six-year-olds every year and think about that. You know, my two granddaughters wear me down in about 40 minutes. (laughs) And you take somebody who contributes their life just every bit at a time, and it's not that they're, you know, unwillingly or uh, resentfully giving up their life. They are giving their life to other people. And I think that may be the greatest act of patriotism I can imagine. There are those who claim to love their country while refusing to understand it. They are the sunshine patriots. True love of country demands an honest accounting. Patriotism and reckoning go hand in hand. Next week, we wrap up this series with a conversation about patriotism and service. You shouldn't have to go to war to get that experience. Uh, And I think any time you come together with diverse people to do something hard, you you get some flavor of that. And at a moment when our national unity is under such strain, and so many forces are amassing to kind of tear us apart, And even the dividing us has become a political strategy for some. It's that much more important to thicken that social fabric. And I think national service is a great way to do it. This is a production of Crooked Media. Thank you to Jacob Zions and Chris Marvin for production assistance. Sean Cherry was our studio booker. Daniel Carissimi is our editor. Thank you to Jeff Gates, Andrew Rinaldi, and Alan Swenson. Till next time.